gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is here with me. And we are continuing our series on the church. And one of the things, this is, uh, so much of what we're talking about is things that often will come up in the group. And especially, I think, in large part, because we have a lot of women who are new to Reformed theology. Some of them are in Reformed churches now. Some of them, maybe not. Some are in maybe different versions of Calvinistic Baptist or um, confessional Baptist churches. And so, we're going to be talking about membership vows and membership covenants. Some of these things are new to a lot of people, and we see a lot of different things, and some of them maybe not so great um, out there. So I think for starters, we're going to talk about ecclesiology. And this is something that is so important to understand, because even, you know, I was thinking, Rachel, even recently with some of the discussions about men and women. So ecclesiology is so important in so many uh, different sort of things. Maybe you can take it over and talk about some of those differences when we're looking at different ecclesiologies when we're talking about membership vows and covenants. There are probably, uh, I know there are others, but there are probably three main um, types of church structure that uh, our listeners would be familiar with. The first one that that people would know are congregational churches. Uh, most Baptists are in Baptist and Bible churches are congregational, and you know, what that means is you, know, you have a pastor or, or a group of pastors. You probably have deacons. You might have elders, although that's been a more recent addition to a lot of the congregational churches that that I've seen. Um, and the pastor makes some decisions. The deacons make some others. But then everything is voted on in the decisions for, by the church congregation. So when there's a budget meeting, all the budget is voted on by the congregation. When, when decisions are made about um, calling a pastor, about um, really anything in the church, it's done on, on a congregational vote. And that's a congregation, congregational polity, congregational 
ecclesiology. Um, Episcopal churches have a different set of um, church set up, and for them they have a hierarchy of, um, it depends what they call them, you know, priests, bishops, um, and you see this in the Catholic Church as well. Um, so there are levels of authority and hierarchy, and there's a status and structure. Uh, in most of these churches, from what I'm familiar with, the denomination itself can make decisions about uh, what pastors serve where and for how long, and they can move them around. Um, or at least I've seen that done. And Lutheran is similar, too. Right. Um, to the, that Episcopal model. Right. And, you know, each denomination has a little difference as far as how much hierarchy is there and how much um, oversight and structure. But that's kind of the general, that's um, a generalization, but a, a general explanation of, of what they're like. And then Presbyterian churches have a polity that is, um, I guess I would call it a representative government, right? We, you have pastors and elders um, <clears throat> who are uh, on the session of a local church where they make decisions uh, um, about things for the congregation, and yet they also bring deci- some decisions to the congregation for the congregation to vote on, and those elders are elected by the congregation, so you pick who your leadership is in these churches. And then there are layers of um, uh, courts or authority over that, so the sessions of each churches, each of the churches um, has oversight over their church, and all of the churches in a denomination in an area are grouped together in a presbytery, and then they meet together and make some decisions and work together, and then on all of the presbyteries in the denomination are part of the General Assembly, and they also meet together and uh, make some decisions and work on things. And so you have these levels of oversight and authority. But all of the men who are elected as elders um, and pastors are done so, they're picked by their churches and then affirmed by the presbytery and GA, etc. Um, so, you know, People talk about um, the U.S. government structure and some of the checks and balances that we have in our representative uh, government. And it really is true that a lot of that did come from uh, taking ideas from a Presbyterian form of church government and how how you pick leaders and how they represent you, et cetera. Yeah, even even in our in church discipline cases. Mm-hmm. So if there's a church dis- – and, you know, we, we see this all the time and um, – Reformed Presbyterian churches. If there's a church discipline case and the and the um, person wants to appeal to a higher authority, it can then go to a presbytery and it can even go to general assembly, which is kind of like the Supreme Court. Um, so there's a lot a lot there, and you'll see a lot of overlap. I grew up in the Evangelical Free Church, and even and so. In the Evangelical Free Church and in the Southern Baptist, they talk a lot about church autonomy. And so there's not really, there's an affiliation. Um, both of them will say, we're not denominations. But there, there's an affiliation there. There's agreed upon things, but each church has their own statement of faith, as long as it's in line with the greater uh, denominational beliefs. And um, they can have even... Even within, I know the Evangelical Free Church, and I, I know even in Southern Baptist churches, there can be um, different uh, forms of church government 
depending on the church. And so you'll see, one of the things you'll see is you'll see some of the aspects that we have in Presbyterianism in some of these churches. And I grew up in a church very much like that, where there was a, there was elders, you know, they, we had a, the pastor and the elders that functioned in a similar way to what I've seen in the Presbyterian church. There were membership vows, um, like we have in um, our churches and even church discipline. And um, I wanted to note historically that um, church discipline, sh- you know, is an important aspect of, of churches historically that the marks of a true church were um, the s- administering of the sacraments and preached word and church discipline. So that's an important thing. Um, hopefully that is in most churches. But this is the thing in in these autonomous churches, there's no oversight and sometimes not um, well thought out ways of discipline. So, I mean, I've seen even a pastor decide someone is in sin and excommunicates them. And there's no appeal process. The person can be like, but I didn't do that, you know, and there's there's no appeal process or oversight. I think, and I know you do also, that some of some of these things have led to some spiritual abuse. Absolutely. Um, we'll talk about it more about some of the examples of what we've seen. But, you know, I think you're right that a lot of what what we're seeing, especially in the more recent um, uh, developments within these churches, um, not Presbyterian churches, but other churches, uh, is that they're trying to incorporate some of these ideas, and they like some of the ideas of, of um, like Presbyterian polity, but you're right, that they lack the oversight, and so there's, there's a lot more... Um, unrestrained power and authority over the, the congregations. Um, and of course, you know, and with, with good pastors and good elders, that's not a problem, right? You can see it done well and people are well taken care of it. But it's, um, as with all things, the checks and balances that we have uh, are there to protect against when things aren't good. Right. And, and you know, I've, that's one thing, reason I appreciate the Presbyterian form of church government, um, where, you know, I even saw a situation years ago, and um, the pastor and elders had a view and asked some people to leave the church, and it, it wasn't done the way that even our book of church order lays out, and they were able to go to the presbytery, you know, that wasn't the, the pastor and elders were not the last word, so these people were able to go to the presbytery and appeal that, and then the presbytery could look and say to the pastor and elders, because Pastor and elders are actually members of Presbytery um, in the way we're members of the church. And so the Presbytery could come and say, okay, you did not follow um, correct procedure and this wasn't done right. So let's talk about, give some examples of the the different um, church memberships and covenants um, that, that we're aware of. And why don't you start with the OPC? Well, one of the things that I noticed in, in looking at and comparing the differences between like the OPC and PCA's uh, membership vows versus some of the, the things that we're seeing that are called membership covenants at some, some fairly well-known churches um, really has to do with the scope and the, the depth of what is covered. Um, the membership vows for both the OPC and the PCA are, are pretty straightforward, very basic, and it's pretty short. There's only four or five um, vows, I think, I know the PCA has five. Um, I think there are four for the OPC. And 
Uh, let me just give you an example. So, the OPC, the vows of church membership, um, do you believe the Bible consisting of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? Do you admit you're a sinner, hating your sinfulness? Do you humble yourself before God and trust for salvation, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone? Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord, and do you promise in reliance on the grace of God to serve Him with all that is in you, to forsake the world, putting to death your old nature, and to lead a godly life? And do you agree to submit in the Lord to the government of this church, and in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life, to obey its discipline? And that's it. Those are the four. Um, and those are specific to what is important in the Word of God. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Are you are you a Christian? Do you tr- trust me in Christ alone? Do you believe in in the in the Scriptures? And um, then the, the last question, of course, about is very specific to being a Presbyterian. Do you submit to the leadership of your elders? And um, that's you know, it, it's still it has to do with. Um, with very specifically with ha- whether or not you are behaving as a Christian and living in a way that is uh, appropriate. And it's not um, the kinds of things that would get you uh, disciplined should not be things that are, you know, um, you know matters of, of Christian liberty. Like, do you, do you drink? Um, like, have a drink with dinner? Or do you, how do you, how do you educate your children? or um, what kind of uh, clothes you like to wear. Those are not the kind of things that they're talking about. It's more like, if to be delinquent here, it's like if you um, were caught in adultery or in serious sin or in a pattern of consistent sin in something, it, it's not supposed to be uh, micromanaging your life. We have seen, um, and the, some of these situations have been very public, but we have we have seen in in some churches, not not Presbyterian, but um, in some of these autonomous churches, um, where there is a micromanaging. And you know, I was telling Rachel before we recorded about a church I knew of that when you sign that membership covenant, you you can't drink, you can't go to movies that are rated R, different you know, very, very specific things, or you you could be disciplined out of the church. I have heard of a church that you, in their membership covenant, homeschooling is there. And just a lot of micromanaging. And so one of the churches that we've heard um, a lot about what happened was, was Mars Hill, which it doesn't exist anymore. And some of their the things in their membership covenant were not super specific, like you can't drink, you can't do this. But um, one, of, one of the things that was in there was, I will strive to properly manage the resources God has given me, including my time, body, gifts, and talents, attitudes, finances, and possessions. And maybe that doesn't all sound horrible on the surface, but that was open to interpretation from the leadership of the church and then used to micromanage. And I know personal um, situations from there. Yeah, one of the other... Um statements from that Mars Hill membership covenant is um, that you promise uh, to maintain a close relationship with the Lord through regular personal Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, and practice of other spiritual disciplines. And my journey in Christ will be evident through my regular participation in the corporate worship services and involvement in a small group or class. Um, 
when you when you get that specific about what you're promising to do, you're giving the church oversight over quite a lot of your life. A small group is not something that we see in Scripture that you must do or you are not Correct. a good Christian. And I guess that's part of what I see in the differences. While in like the PCA and the OPC, you you know you're, you're saying that um, you you hold to the basics of the Christian faith, right? These membership covenants in place in, in certain places seem to be trying to um, to make sure that everyone who comes in and is a member is really a Christian, right? And I think it it blurs the distinction between you know the visible and invisible church. We and by that I mean we know that there are people around us who profess to be believers uh, who aren't. We don't know who they are, but we know that God says that there are people around us that are believers, say they're believers, but who actually aren't. And some of the efforts um, that I've seen, I think the uh, impulse behind them or the intention behind them is to guard against there being non-believers who are function- who are in the church and acting like believers. I'm saying they're believers. But the danger here is it really is a micromanagement and a binding of consciences. Yeah, at one church, they used to have something that said, I will seek to preserve the gift of marriage and agree to walk through the steps of marriage reconciliation at such and such church before pursuing divorce from my spouse. And one of the problems that came up in very public, in a very public situation with that, is that it, there was there there was clear very clear biblical grounds for divorce. And so, you know, when there's... There was one case um, a few years back now at one of the churches that uh, used that kind of covenant language, or kind of language in their membership covenant. And um, a woman annulled her marriage because she had discovered that her husband was um, sexually abusive in um, in his relationship with others. I think it was... If I remember correctly, it was connected to being um, a pedophile. And her church decided that she had violated the church covenant because they hadn't gotten the, the church's permission to file for an annulment. And so she was put under discipline. But if I remember correctly, her ex-husband was not. And eventually, with enough there was some damage control done and they decided to um, to let her go and not pursue her as being in, in violation of the covenant. But this is what you know, we're talking about. And we've talked about this in our episode on divorce and we've talked about it in other places on abuse. The church doesn't have a right to bind a man or a woman's conscience in such matters, right? This is, I mean, it's one thing to say, to come alongside someone and say, you're abandoning your spouse and, and you need to to live up to your marriage vows, right? It, and we're talking about an ungodly abandoning. That is that is some place that the church can legitimately come along and talk to, to their members about. But in the case where a spouse has recognized that there is something seriously wrong, um, the church should come alongside the the aggrieved spouse and not uh, punish them or attempt to discipline them because they don't like the way things were done or they didn't get permission first from the church. Um, 
it's an inappropriate use of the church's authority. We've seen instances where there is spiritual <clears throat> abuse on top of other mm-hmm. abuse. You know, with that somebody is suffering and has has maybe um, has separated from an abusive spouse, and then then they face spiritual abuse on top of what they've already dealt with. Right. And you know, I, I want to say, and, and to be clear here, it is possible to have similar abuses uh, happen in Presbyterian forms of government, in churches with Presbyterian forms of government. Um, I think we've all seen it happen. Those of us who've been around long enough have seen churches mishandle, um, especially in the cases of women who have left abusive spouses, uh, and then are later the church tries to discipline them for that. Um, the difference is, what we talked about, what Colleen mentioned earlier is that with the Presbyterian form of government, there is oversight and there is the ability to appeal a church's decision to the Presbytery and to the General Assembly or to the the higher courts uh, in a way that these autonomous churches don't have any, uh, there's no recourse. So while I, I, I absolutely recognize that abuses can happen within any form of church government, I appreciate the um, the level and the levels of um, checks and balances that are there for the protection of, of the people in, in the churches. One of the things I wanted to mention from the membership vows of the, the PCA talks about you promise to, to work towards the peace and purity of the church. And I've always liked that language as um, a good reminder of what we're there for and how we can be or, or what we're promising as members. And what we're talking about in the difference between that kind of, you know, how the church can say, you know, what you're doing is going against the peace and purity of the church. Um, it's still not the same thing as being able to, you know, tell you how to vote, how to educate your kids, how to dress, what to read, what not to read, whether or not you can uh, drink or dance or smoke. All these are things that, you know, um, some churches have um, very specific rules on. So while the church can act within, or the church leadership can act to protect the peace and purity of the church, they can't bind your conscience. And as members, we can promise to um, to be peaceful and to work for peace in a church, um, and to not be contentious. Um, but we also know that we're going to be left to make decisions on our own about certain things. You know, I think it's so important just for us as Christians in general, especially when we see so much. If you're in a church, you're going to have disagreements with people on secondary issues. You know, there's in, in every denomination, there's room for disagreements on some secondary issues. And... We don't ignore our differences, but we should discuss them with respect and grace and love. And remember that Scripture calls us to pursue peace. We are still to be peaceful. So, qualified male ordination. This is this is something that um, I've had some discussions recently because of um, some of the issues with with men and women, where 
in Presbyterian and Reformed churches, this is something we value. You, you're not going to go to an OPC on a Sunday morning and see a lay person preaching just because he's a man. You know, if our pastor's out of town, uh, either an elder preaches or a pastor from another congregation fills in or something like that, because we value when, when we're talking about corporate worship and leading in corporate worship, uh, we think it's very important that it is qualified men that do that. And Rachel, you've done a lot of work on this just because of your book. Um, talking about this. Yeah. So I'd love for you to talk about it because you've done so much research and writing on it already. Now, one of the things, uh, and I actually write about this in my book, one of the things that's important to talk about when we're talking about, uh, or to clarify when we're talking about um, qualified male ordination is, you know, what, what are we talking about and what aren't we talking about? So what does it mean and what doesn't it mean? And... Um, you know, as we're talking about church government and discipline and all of these matters, we're talking about um, leadership in the church. And Colleen and I both, as uh, Presbyterians, as um, um, you know, members of very conservative denominations, um, what we're talking about with church leadership is that God has ordained certain leadership, uh, certain men. To and given them the responsibility of the ministry of the word and sacrament, um, he he's made them responsible for the care and protection of the members of their congregations, and this is a very um, important calling. It's a very um, important uh, there are very important roles in our churches, and as church members, as we talked about in making the, our our membership vows. We promise to submit to the authority of our ordained leaders. You know, it comes Hebrews thirteen says thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable to you for you. Now, as we also said, this authority is limited and qualified. Uh, they can't tell you, you know, how to vote, how to treat your kids, how to dress, uh, but they do have a real authority over you. As, uh, our, as our church leadership, and we respect that, we should. Um, but not everybody who wants to go into, into church leadership is qualified, and not everybody who might meet the qualifications has been called to it. And so, you know, the Bible sets a very high bar. As we'll see as we read through um, a couple passages, you know, we believe that ordination should be restricted, and we say qualified male ordination. Um, we do believe that only men are uh, called to be ordained, but being a man is not the only qualification. So let's, looking at two passages, one is Titus 1, and the other is First Timothy 3. Titus 1 says, If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but, hus- but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. 
1 Timothy 3 says, An overseer then, an overseer is another word for elder or pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited or fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. When you read through those uh, qualifications, there is a lot there that Paul is talking about, um, about the qualities that make a man qualified for leadership. Um, And it's not the same qualities that you see that the world around us, the secular world around us, values in leadership. Um, This talks about being above reproach, not quick-tempered, not uh, pugnacious, and that, of course, means um, not one who is given to fighting and um, arguing. Um, What's someone who is self-controlled, sensible, just, peaceable, gentle, hospitable. Um, These are men who have um, demonstrated that they are uh, servants in the church, that they serve their families, that they serve the Lord, uh, that they care for others, and they are not in leadership for the purpose of their own glorification or um, advancement. As Rachel's reading all of these, one of the things I'm thinking about is in, I, I don't know how it's done in a lot of churches, but our, the ordination process in Reformed and Presbyterian churches is very vigorous in, in considering all of these things. Certainly should be. <laughs> right. It, it should be. I actually did talk to a Baptist friend and um, she said, well, in, in our churches, you know, the churches ordain. And it just sounded like, I, I don't know exactly how it was done, but we have, it's a, it's quite a process and an examination to make sure that someone is qualified. Right. Yeah, those, that, that is a good point. The levels of examination um, are, are pretty Im- impressive. I don't know if everyone is aware, uh, especially when you're looking at uh, someone who's a pastor. Uh, not only do they have to have gone through seminary, um, they have to be called by a church, and then they have to be ordained by uh, the presbytery that they're going into. Uh, and that is that exam, even for people who men who have been ordained in other denominations, it's it's rigorous. <laughs> it's um, it covers a lot of information, a lot of material, a lot of questions to make sure that the person uh, is uh, well qualified to be a pastor in the denomination. And even if a pastor then goes from one presbytery to another in the same denomination, he's called from one church to another, he will still have to go through a a type of questioning uh, to make sure of his qualifications again. So there is, uh, there are a lot of uh, steps that, that should be followed. Now, does it work every time? Of course not. There are men who really shouldn't be pastors and elders who end up being ordained for various reasons, um, and and that is that it's not an argument against um, how we do ordination, 
but it is a reminder that we should be careful that we really are following the qualifications that the scripture lays out uh, and not being swayed by um, uh, more, more worldly understanding of leadership. And there have been situations where a Presbytery will, and it's, it's not just an easy thing that they do, but will decide that someone has disqualified himself um, from being a pastor or elder. And based on what Scripture says, I, even though, as Rachel said, does, is there never a time where someone doesn't slip through the cracks? I mean, obviously that, that happens because we're still sinners and um, there are things that are not done perfectly sometimes. But um, these things are taken serious based on what Scripture has called us to on the qualifications for a pastor and elder. Right. So, when we talk about how Scripture uh, restricts ordination to qualified men, you know, we aren't saying that any man is qualified to lead. And when unqualified men are ordained, and when unordained men are allowed to act in places in churches that should be reserved for qualified ordained men. Like we talked about, you know, we don't just have anyone or any man preach on a Sunday. It needs to be one of our elders or, or an elder from another church. Um, this undermines the, uh, the qualifications for ordination. When you say that, well, it doesn't really matter as long as any man can do the job in a pinch. It really... Um, undermines both the importance of ordination and also the importance of the ministerial work that our ordained leaders do. So, what we're saying with this, with leadership, is not that you, know, you have a church and all the men are leaders and all the women are submitting to that leadership. Uh, in a church with qualified, ordained male leadership, the, the leadership is a small portion, or it should be a fairly small portion of the whole church, and the lay men and women, the members of the congregation, men and women, submit to that leadership. So, in our churches, while we have only men who are ordained, we, d- we should not have, then, um, a masculine church or a masculine culture in our churches that does not recognize um, the the role of women in the church as lay women. Um, and that's, that's kind of a delicate balance. And, and so when we talk about, and we've talked about this uh, in other episodes, we've talked about it uh, with Amy um, and we have her on soon uh, with her book. We'll talk about this some more, but when you set apart that there are certain works work that should be done in the church by qualified uh, ordained men, then the rest of the work of the church that's apart from that should be done by the men and women of the church as they are gifted or as they have abilities and as the church has need. And by doing that, the church is not prioritizing men over women, but is using all the gifts of the church in order to, uh, all the gifts of the congregation in order to meet the needs of the church and in order to spread the gospel and to be um, a light to the world around us. Yeah, we don't have three categories, okay? So we don't have lay, lay like a, a lay, I mean, pastors and elders, and then underneath them, all the lay men, 
and then underneath them all the lay women. Right. That, that's not how it works. We have the ordained officers of the church, and then we have lay people. There's The lay men and women are only distinct in, in that we have different vocations and different um, uh, strengths and things like that. So, um, you know, the lay men are, can be fathers, lay women can't. But there's not... There's not some sort of like, and I've seen this. I've seen this in Baptist churches because I in a, you know, some different churches, especially throughout college, where uh, you had the ordained officers, and then you had certain things that any man could do. And if the pastor was out of town, he he could ask any man in the church to to come up and preach on Sunday morning. Um, and there was just weird categories not not actually spoken categories but in practice it seemed well and that's where you know i think we've talked about this before um that's where the like the arguments over whether um it was appropriate for beth moore to give the sermon on a on a a mother's day um at a church um you know for us as presbyterians we would say you know no layman or laywoman, no unordained, um, should be uh, preaching the sermon in, a, in the in corporate worship. That's not that's not okay, right? So, as a as a matter of uh, church polity of ecclesiology, we would say that's a that's a category error. You know, no one unordained, male or female, should be preaching on Sunday. Um, which is a separate question from, you know, who should be ordained and whether or not it's appropriate for a woman to speak. You know, it, it's, it's a lot of, because we believe as Presbyterians that only ordained men uh, preach the sermon, then that would automatically disqualify a number of people from speaking, including uh, women preaching on Sunday. Does that make sense? Yeah, and before you were on the podcast, uh, so a couple summers ago, when they were uh, debating, they, they were saying, oh, Beth Moore should be the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention. It got into this big old thing, no, a only a man should be president of Southern Baptist Convention. So I went and did a little research, and I found out that while it has rarely happened, the um, president of Southern Baptist Convention is actually open to lay people. And so Angela and I said on the podcast, well, if you're going to open it to lay people, then why not a woman? Not that we're, we're not campaigning for her to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention, but we were, we said that to make a point. And so if you're, if you're going to say only a man, why only a lay man and not a lay woman? Um, You know, maybe it's better that the Southern Baptist Convention says only an ordained man that then we say okay yeah she doesn't fit that you know and but you're going to run into problems if you don't have correct categories right and that's where you know having those correct categories shows you the difference between it's one thing you know we believe that um on sunday morning in corporate worship uh, that only our uh, elders and pastors should preach Right, because they are the ones who have been uh, called and ordained and qualified and set apart for this ministry. But then, if we're talking about um, a small group or a Bible study uh, or even a Sunday school, right, which is separate from the or- the corporate worship 
that's the official worship service of the church. Um, and in those cases, you know, there there are places for laymen, laywomen, to speak and to teach in those classes. And it is appropriate as a category for them to speak in that way. And so, you know, that that's where I would say, if you're talking about, you go to a conference, and the conference has is on theology, and there are both men and women speakers there, I don't see that that is any kind of uh, inappropriate, because we're not talking about our um, something that is reserved for corporate worship. It is not something that is the word and sacrament ministry of the church. Um, it has not been set apart only for ordained men. And so, sure, we can listen to either a man or woman speak. Um, but, again, when we talk about corporate worship, when we talk about um, the Sunday morning worship service, um, you know, that is something that is reserved for our ordained men. This is something that um, we've been criticized for. I'm going to speak specifically about conferences. Um, this is how it's been. <laughs> in it, Thankfully, at least in the circles I've been in, as long as I've been reformed. Mm-hmm. A white horse inn. I had women speak at their conferences. And other, uh, even Ligonier <laughs> has had women speak at their conferences. And that's because we... Because they have other, they have lay men sometimes speak at their conferences too. Right. And this accusation that this is just sliding into feminism or egalitarianism, all the people that I've known that have believed this and practiced this, as long as I've been reformed, which is almost 26 years now, haven't slid into egalitarianism yet. Because we have these correct distinctions. We strongly affirm it is only qualified men that are to be pastors and elders. And we see a conference as very different than um, than corporate worship, and um, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit when we have Amy on in a couple of weeks. Um, why that is different? Anyways, just wanted to throw that in because I know these things are hotly debated, and I think sometimes. Uh, People affirm things because it sounds right. Oh, no, only a man should speak. And they haven't really thought through these appropriate categories. Right. Um, one of the things that, now I'll give a quote from one of the chapters in my book and talking about this. Um, in First Timothy 2.12, Paul explains that women aren't to teach or exercise authority over men. Uh, but don't hear what Paul isn't saying. He isn't saying that women can never have authority over men or that men can never learn from women. He simply means that women aren't called to positions of authority in the church or to teach men authoritatively in the public worship of the church. So outside the ordained leadership of the church, women aren't restricted from having authority. And that's the end of the quote. Um, And I think it's important to recognize that that's talking about the categories that we're, that we're speaking of here. And, and the importance of upholding the, the proper qualifications for ordination and the proper um, um, word and sacrament ministry in the, in the discipline of the church as well that our ordained leaders are called to. And apart from that, what the men and women of the church can do. And what Rachel just said right there is um, identical to what I've heard from 
um, several Reformed pastors, including one of my own. So we're not just making stuff up be, to fit our own narrative. This, that's actually, when I was struggling to understand this years ago, what I was taught from my own pastor. Um, if you take that black and white, that a woman is never to teach or never to exercise authority over a man, because what people do is they, I say, well, what about my children? Oh, that's different. I mean, if you're going to be black and white about it, think of all of the implications. Um, but, and we'll talk about this with Amy later on, people do, they would say that it's different with children, but um, there are people that believe this is in all of society. You know, if my husband, if, if my husband can no longer work, and so I go out in the workforce, and I, I get a job over at Taco Bell and become a manager, I, I have to be careful not to exercise authority over my employees. I'm sorry, my male employees. Yeah, yeah. maybe they'd be okay with the female employees. And that, that is in literature. That is in complementarian literature, by the way. We're not just, we're not, we're not making up examples. This is actually in the literature. Anyways, we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, I think actually, aren't we having Amy on next? Yeah. Oh, yes, I guess it will be next week. So everyone look forward to that. We'll, we'll let Amy speak in her own words. I've, I've recently, I don't know, Rachel, if you've seen any of this, but I've seen some misrepresentations about what's in her book. So we'll, we'll let Amy talk about what it is that her book is about and what she believes. And I know Rachel and I both highly recommend reading it. And, you know, for me, Rachel, when I read it, it was not what I thought it was going to be. I mean, some of it was, but it was far more than what I thought it was going to be in a, in a very good way. So, well, I hope this was helpful. You know, this is such an important discussion when we're talking about the church in general and um, really thinking, thinking through these things. We don't, we don't say as long as a, someone is a man, he's automatically qualified uh, for, for being a pastor or elder. And at the same token, I think it's important to understand what that authority means when we started off the discussion with vows and covenants, what it means and what it doesn't mean. And we'll see you next week.